Kids are resilient, but sometimes they do get hurt on the soccer field, on the bike, or on the steps. Accidents happen. If your child suffers an orthopedic injury, take them to the official physicians of the Carolina Panthers, Ortho Carolina. Same day appointments available, no referral needed, with five convenient area locations. And orthopedic urgent care in Winston-Salem and Kernersville. Ortho Carolina. You improved. OrthoCarolina.com. That's OrthoCarolina.com. This is Twin City Talks, powered by Ortho Carolina. Here's your host, Paul Garber. A recent study in the journal Science found that the number of birds in the United States and Canada has declined by about 3 billion since 1970. And earlier this month, the National Audubon Society issued its own report providing a bleak outlook for birds in the immediate future if nothing is done to address the environmental damage from climate change. But it's not too late. The song you're hearing now is from the red-cocated woodpecker. Researchers have recently found that it's making a comeback after years of being considered endangered. The Audubon Society has an online report that shows local impact of climate change potentially, but also what can be done about it that will help give our winged friends a better chance. With us today is Kim Brand. She's a network manager at Audubon, North Carolina, and you live here uh, in Winston-Salem, right, Kim? That's right. Well, great. We're excited to have you here with us today to talk about birds. And can you tell me a little bit about the local situation? According to the Audubon report, what is happening now and what is what are the immediate risks for the future? Absolutely. Thanks for having me today, Paul. Um, so on October 10th, the National Audubon Society uh, released a report studying 140 million bird records, uh, many of which were collected right here in Forsyth County by our local Forsyth Audubon volunteers um, and community scientists everywhere. And basically it had bad news for North American birds. So I'll start sort of from the the continental level and then zoom in to Forsyth County. Um, But it found that of the 604 species for which we had enough data, uh, two thirds of those are at serious risk of extinction from climate change. So birds are facing lots of challenges. Uh, You mentioned the 3 billion birds report earlier. Uh, We know birds are facing challenges, but we also know that if we take immediate action at the federal and state policy level on climate change, uh, we can save about three-fourths of those birds. So three-fourths of those birds will be better off. So what exactly are the threats that they're facing because of climate change? Sure. So... Things like temperature and rainfall uh, determine the distribution of plants and animals, of course. Um, They all respond to that. So climate change uh, is dictating basically where these birds can make a living. Where can they find the habitats that they need? Where can they find the food that they need? And what we're seeing uh, from the maps in this study and from our analyses is that the places where these specific species can make a good living are shrinking and they're shifting. So you see for a lot of our North Carolina birds, their ranges, their possible ranges are being shifted to the west. It's kind of like a field guide to the future. That's interesting. And so um, I know at the, at the coast, what's happening is there's, there's sea level rise. And that comes into the, if you're a coastal bird and you're on the, the, the strand right there, then your habitat might be getting wiped out by these increases. And you're seeing things like uh, ghost forest, which is when the water comes in and mm-hmm. takes over. But in the Piedmont, what are, are the threats different? Sure. So, and of course, sea level rise um, is an obvious challenge to our coastal birds. Um, every bird, part, part of the second part of the study looked at specific threats like extreme heat in spring, extreme rainfall. 
um, fire conditions and every coastal bird, every, every bird species we studied is facing at least one of those climate change threats. Whether or not we found that they, you know, they stood to lose a very significant chunk of their range. So with our coastal birds, that we're, that's what we're seeing is they face sea level rise and difficulty finding places to nest. But for our local populations, it's different. And it's, is it the temperature that's, that's thrown off their cycle or what's happening there? Good question. Um, it's a couple things. So why don't I zoom in um, on our website at nc.audubon.org. And Audubon is hard to spell. It's A-U-D-U-B-O-N dot O-R-G. Yes, we welcome shameless plugs here. So <laughs> Thank you. I figured that was okay. Um, so you can type in your zip code and find out which of the birds in your, you know, in your neighborhood, in your yard often are vulnerable. So um, if you type in 27106, one of my favorite zip codes to bird in, um, includes Renolda, includes Historic Bethabra Park, some of the very best places to look at birds, especially in, fall, in spring migration. Um, you find 11 species that are highly vulnerable to climate change. And uh, this is a pretty tough list for people who pay attention to birds, which is, I find, most people. Um, the brown-headed nuthatch is one of the birds. That's a, an adorable little bird that visits bird feeders, the tiniest one. Great. Can we hear from one? I think you've got some bird songs sure. uh, ready to go for us. Yes, and part of this bird's charm is its adorable sound that it makes. Um, so even if you don't see it at your feeder, if you've got pine trees around you, the bird is obsessed with pine trees, um, you will hear these. Yeah, that's a pretty sound. And so we <laughs> might be able to hear that if we go out into um, this this. I, I I am really bad at, at pairing bird songs with birds, <laughs> but I, I, I'm just lousy at it. Well, but if you can just remember that one sounds like a rubber ducky or a dog's squeaky toy. Okay, then I'll recognize it that one. Yeah, okay. absolutely. All right, great. So that's one of the ones that's threatened. And um, there, are, there are two more that are, that are among those that have an immediate threat to them, right? And so we can talk about those as well. What What are those other two? Sure. So two other ones that really pop on this list of 11 climate highly vulnerable species here in Forsyth County are the wood thrush and the brown thrasher. These are two of the best songbirds in North America, the most beautiful songs. The brown thrasher has the largest repertoire of any bird in North America, more than 1,800 different phrases that this bird can make. Um, It's a cousin of the mockingbird and just a really neat bird that people enjoy in their yards. Right, let's hear from it. Great. Familiar. I've heard uh-huh. that before. Absolutely. This bird often hides from people uh, throughout the fall and winter, and then in the spring, this bird is really in your face, singing at that on the top of your oak tree, singing, you know, all over the place. Very nice. Okay, yeah. and one more. The wood thrush. Many people say this is the most beautiful word. Uh, bird song in all of North America. Pretty. Yeah, that's nice. Mm-hmm. This bird can sing out of both sides of its voice box, or in bird world, we call that a syrinx. Um, so it can actually make harmony with itself. Oh, no, that's a nice trick. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. All right. Okay. Um, so, how often do you hear these when you're out? You you go birding a lot, I take it. Mm-hmm. Is it is it really when you hear that? Is it like, oh wow, there's a there's a nuthatch 
and I don't get to hear that a lot, or is it, well, there's a nut hatch and that should be there and I'm used to hearing it. Where, where, where on that continuum, where do you, where do you kind of fall? Oh, sure. So for each of those three, um, the brown-headed nuthatch, if you are in pine habitat, you're fairly likely to hear it. Um, I hear it all over the place. There's great pine habitat at Tanglewood, at Miller Park, at Bethabra, at Renolda, and also just in neighborhoods, Washington Park, my little neighborhood park. Um, those are all great places for brown-headed nuthatches. And also, just a quick shout-out to Forsyth Audubon for putting up a bunch of birdhouses for these birds. If you see birdhouses around town that have a tiny, tiny hole, about an inch in diameter, that's for the brown-headed nuthatch. So the bluebirds can't get it, and it gives the nuthatch uh, a chance to make babies in there. Okay, great. Yeah. And so is there is there a bird out there where you just go crazy when you hear the, the sound because it's uh, it's special to you? Probably, that's true of the wood thrush. I think for, for me, and I hear from bird people across the state, that the wood thrush really makes people happy. Um, it's a bird that we have watched decline. People have been watching birds 10, 20, 30, 40 years around here, um, have seen it decline just because habit, it, it needs deep, dark forest. And as development occurs and our forest patches become smaller, the wood thrushes kind of wink out. They're super territorial. They come back to the same territory or close by every winter. I mean, excuse me, every summer. The brown-headed nuthatch and the brown thrasher are with us all year round, but the wood thrush is special because it, it migrates. So wood thrushes are filing through. They're passing by North Carolina now. Our wood thrushes are heading south for the winter, um, mostly Central America and Southern Mexico. We did a neat tracking project with Audubon, North Carolina, and the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center uh, a couple years ago, and Forsyth Audubon as well, and tracked one of our wood thrushes to Belize. And we knew that because it came back to the same spot a oh, year wow. later. Yeah, yeah. It's quite the vacation down to Belize. No doubt. I know, I know. Um, so I think, But I wouldn't want to have to do it without a vehicle. <laughs> right. And so they can fly 300 miles in one night. You know, the birds are kind of like sailors. They are uh, very attentive to the weather. And when there's a cold front that will take them south more easily, they will jump on it. Yeah. 300 miles in a night? Yeah. Dang. Okay. Yeah. All right. That, that's amazing. So what is it about these particular species, these three that you've mentioned, that makes them so vulnerable? Is that their numbers are low now or is that there's something about them that they're super sensitive to the environment? Good question. And, um, you know, two of those have very specific habitat requirements. The, the brown-headed nuthatch has got to have pine trees for a variety of reasons. And the wood thrush needs that deep, dark forest I mentioned. Um, as far as the specific threats that we had enough data to look at, um, all three of those are experienced, or we expect will experience trouble from spring heat. So that's a problem because um, baby birds need, they don't thermoregulate when they hatch in the nest. They're naked, songbirds are naked. Um, and so extreme heat at the wrong moment during that nesting cycle can be deadly. Um, also, they experience heavy rain. So again, during the nesting season, birds are really vulnerable. Um, the only way a bird has to keep its babies dry, at least the birds that nest in open cups, like a basket of a nest, um, is to cover the baby birds with its body. So that's tough on birds. And then urbanization as well um, is a factor and a threat that's made worse by climate change that affects all three of those species. We had a situation where a bunch of birds flew into the NASCAR Hall of Fame big glass front down in Charlotte. I mean, is yes. that is that... And, and a risk of urbanization? I mean, we're, we're still growing around here. Sure, absolutely. So the NASCAR Hall of Fame incident um, was highly unusual for a lot of reasons. Um, 
and in fact, we have a meeting with them next week to talk with them about ways they can reduce bird collisions. Um, but basically, and that, that was a chimney swift event, highly unusual that bird is supposed to be safe in bed inside a chimney at dark. So something spooked those birds out of their chimney probably. Um, but the common, you know, everyday occurrence during fall and spring is that songbirds are migrating at night. Um, it's safer and cooler for them at night. So they're flying in the dark. And then, especially on foggy nights, um, they are drawn down into our urban areas because of lights that we have shining into the sky. So on a clear night with a night, you know, nice bright stars and bright moon, um, the birds will often just fly on through. But if it's cloudy, they are drawn down into cities. And we see them here. They crash into windows. It's a hard, hard matrix for them to navigate. They don't understand uh, that windows are solid. They don't respond to architectural cues. And then if they see habitat reflected in a window, they're, they're doomed. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, we're excited to work with the NASCAR Hall of Fame on finding solutions. So turning lights out is one thing that can truly help. And then there's, there's plenty of things you can do to those windows, especially the first three floors of a building. Um, you can apply films to the outside of the window that will actually help the birds see it. Great. And I know that... Um you know, part of what y'all want to do is to see some policy change. And if there are legislators listening, that's great. But most of our audience are just people who want to contribute, uh, but um, but aren't in that kind of position. And so in a minute, I want to talk about what people can do at the local level, mm-hmm. in your backyard, in your at your own home, in your day-to-day life, that can make it easier for birds to survive. Okay? But before we do that, I'm really interested in kind of what drew you to your interest in birds to begin with? Is, is it a lifelong thing, or where, where did this come from? <laughs> well, sure. So good question. I grew up in Florida, where the birds are big, they're colorful, you can't miss them. So pretty much everyone pays attention to them. Uh, my dad, in particular, paid attention to the herons and the pelicans. So I, I grew up knowing specific bird names. Um, I didn't get into looking at the teeny tiny birds till a little bit after college. Um, and I, I basically did, started doing sea turtle beach patrols as volunteer work. I was actually working in an ad agency in Florida. Um, and at the end of my four-mile walk looking for sea turtle crawls and nests, uh, there was a colony of black skimmers. And when their eggs hatched and there were tiny fuzzy babies uh, colored like sands, you know, scrambling over the beach, I was totally hooked. Actually went back to school for biology. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, how do you like the birding situation here? I love it. So I think one of the things I love about North Carolina is is the change of seasons. And with those changes of seasons, not only comes amazing wildflowers in the spring and beautiful fall colors, um, but birds changing throughout the year. So the birds that, you know, pass through during migration or the birds that are here just for the summer, like the wood thrush or even um, birds that arrive just for the winter. So birds like the white-throated sparrow that nests in Canada, but then it comes and spends the winter with us, sings a beautiful whistling song all winter long to make you happy <laughs> when it's gloomy and rainy and gray, like it has been a couple times this week. Yeah. Great. And so you mentioned the sea turtles, and I think that's a good example of how, you know, people have really stepped up when they saw what the problems were, and there were lots of problems with the sea turtle population, and now they're really protected. And it's not just a couple of volunteers stepping up and saying, let's do this. I'm sure it started out that way, as mm-hmm. most volunteer efforts do. But it's really been a cultural embrace of saving the sea turtles, where if you do something that gets in the way of that, you're going to get called out for, and it's not going to be nice, because right. we love our sea turtles. And 
that is an example, I think, of of people coming together to mm-hmm. say this these animals have value to us, and we're going to do what we can to make uh, make a difference and and make sure they don't go away. And do you see the same thing happening with birds? I do. And, you know, it's interesting uh, you bring up sea turtles because one of the things that we asked people to do in Florida was turn their lights out. If you're on the beach, you got to turn your lights out. The the hatchlings will follow the light. So I picked up many a little baby sea turtle that was disoriented because of that. So light is a problem for birds, too. So, you know, that's a great example of something that people can do. Um, Just reducing the amount of light that we put out there. We never ask anybody to turn off lights that are needed for human safety, but a lot of the light isn't needed. Um, So back in, I think, 2015, a group of Forsyth Audubon volunteers, you know, we collected these, we checked these buildings downtown for dead birds um, who had collided because of windows and got a lot of commitments from companies like R.J. Reynolds um, to turn off their lights at the top of their buildings from 11 o'clock till dawn during migration. So, so those things have a big impact. And, you know, I, I, right now I'm getting an email box, you know, full of people who are finding birds and want to do something about it. So, so yeah, that's something anybody can do. Like if you work in a building, you have more sway with the building manager in that building or the decision maker at your company than I do. Yeah. Okay. And so you found a receptive audience in a sense mm-hmm. uh, for, for that, that message. And did you ever go back and see, well, are, has it helped that? Are you seeing fewer dead birds? Yeah, so it reduced, uh, turning out lights of several buildings reduced bird collisions by 30%. Man, that's impressive. Pretty good. Yeah. 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 Almost a third, so that's great. Yeah. All right. And so, um, again, most of us aren't large building owners, but but there's a way (laughs) that that you can do something in your own backyard. And let's talk about uh, some strategies for helping out their birds. If you're just a, a, you know, just a resident and you want to make a difference. Absolutely. So, and I think the survival by degrees report, you know, is really calling on us to do two things. One is, is simply protect the places birds need now and in the future, and also take action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, address the root cause of climate change quickly at the state and federal policy levels. So, you know, something anybody can do to give birds a hand, you know, a helping hand is plant native plants in their yards. Um, fall is the best time to plant in North Carolina, especially for trees and shrubs. And the truth is most of what we put in the ground and what we see in landscaped areas around town is actually plants that are mostly furniture to birds. Um, They don't offer up the food resources that the plant species that birds evolved with do. So, uh, and, you know, this native plants movement has really caught on. People are very excited about native plants. So, um, so that's a great one to do. And you can find plant species for your zip code at audubon.org. All right. And that's a, it's a fairly long list. If you look at the, at the, at the (laughs) Forsyth one, it's several pages and, you know, true. I, I don't know that much about uh, the plants. It's, it's a shame, but uh, I really don't. I can tell you a couple of favorites. That's what I was going to ask you for. What, if, if, you could, if you could prioritize, what, sure. what, if you could say to folks, these are the most needed plants. Oh, absolutely. So berries are how birds fuel their southward migration. So native berries are on the very top of the list. American beauty berry is a fantastic one. Big birds can eat these berries little magenta berries, little birds can eat them. Um, they support a lot of species for their fall migrations. So American beauty berry is hands down a great one. Okay. I haven't, when you say berries, I'm thinking blackberries, <laughs> you know, sure, blueberries sure. and things. Uh, but sure. so I think those are not 
there's not people food. They're, they're bird food. <laughs> <laughs> um, blueberries are a great thing to plant for birds. So they are ripe in the summer when birds are hustling, trying to raise those babies. Nice to have a sugary snack to eat. So yes, I always just say plant enough for you and the birds, or if you must net a few of them, that is fine too. The Audubon Society will smile upon you, <laughs> but leave some for the birds. Okay, great. And okay, so that uh, is it. I'm sorry, it's, it's the American... Beautyberry. American Beautyberry. Okay, that would be, um, something like that would be your number one. And what else is on that list? So um, for hummingbirds, I would recommend Coral Honeysuckle. It's a, it's a native vine, and it has gorgeous coral, reddish, orange flowers. And it's a great one because it can live in a container on a balcony, um, or you can plant it alongside your house and put it, have it grow up a trellis. Um, but it's really beautiful, and it has a big flush of blooms in time for ruby-throated hummingbirds arriving from the south after they've crossed the Gulf of Mexico and worked their way up to North Carolina. Those flowers are ready to feed them, and then it keeps blooming until pretty much the time uh, that hummingbirds leave again. So that's a great one. Okay. And what about trees? Trees. So our landscapes tend to be pretty good on trees. Um, what I will say is, you know, if you're thinking of planting a tree, the very best ones, especially if you have space for big ones, are oak trees. They support more than 500 different kinds of caterpillars. Um, whereas a ginkgo tree will only support a small handful, maybe five types of caterpillars. So caterpillars are important to birds because they're the number one baby bird food. They're necessary for almost every one of our songbird species. And, you know, a, a pair of chickadees is going to need five to 9,000 of them to feed their babies. And if you have an oak tree, you know that your baby birds have enough to eat. And, you know, all of these things sort of relate to climate change and that having the food resources they need makes bird populations more resilient. Because um, we know climate change is a threat multiplier. All right, so berries are good. Um, the um, is it? Did you say it was a honeysuckle? That, that the coral. Coral honeysuckle. Oh, okay, that's that's good for the hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. You know what? What are they feeding on that people can get out there? I mean, especially because you know, what about a bird feeder? Well, if you were to, if you, someone's put up a bird feeder, obviously you can go to the store and see a lot of different varieties. <laughs> um, do you want a variety of? You want know, them to put up two and have different kinds of varieties, or what is the most valuable thing they can do with a bird feeder? Oh, good question. So putting up a variety of different foods is great. Um, black oil sunflower seeds are kind of the gold standard. Um, you also want some thistles for things like goldfinches. Um, I think suet is a really good thing to put out for the birds on very, very cold nights. Um, that fatty block of suet could make, mean the difference between a, a little bird like a chickadee or a little tiny, tiny ruby crown kinglet making it through the night. Okay, so, so they've got so, to fatten up, and so suet is a real can be a real lifesaver in the winter. So for me, when I had a bird feeder, I don't have one currently, but when I had one in the winter, I just kind of let it go. But you're saying mm-hmm. keep it year-round, right? Sure, and people worry that birds will become overly dependent on them, but there's really no research to support that. Birds will find food, so... There should be no guilt factor here, <laughs> although it's tempting when the birds come looking. <laughs> okay, squirrels too, unfortunately. Um, okay, um, and so you mentioned that some some plants are are like furniture, then that that, that they they can rest on them, but they have no other particular value. Mm-hmm. Are there any plants that you would say, hey, let's put a native plant here instead of this one that is really popular that people like to use, but. 
you know. Are you asking me to pick on something? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm going to pick on, I'm glad to do that. I'm going to pick on the crepe myrtle trees that I see right outside the window here. Yes. <laughs> boy, oh boy, it's, it's, you know, it's good furniture. American robins love to build nests in a crepe myrtle. Um, but we just don't have caterpillars that can eat those leaves. So there's, there's not a lot going on there. The, if you would even call them berries or seeds, those are not particularly helpful to birds either. So um, there's lots of small native trees that are great. Uh, the dogwood, you know, our state flower. Flowering dogwood is fantastic for birds. It's a small tree, so it can live in some of those same situations. And then it actually produces berries in the fall that are fantastic for our southbound birds. Um, and dogwood berries are about 25% fat. So they're a great food for birds that are needing to fatten up to get that 300 miles south that night. When we talk about birds, a lot of us talk about things like their, their beauty, their mm-hmm. plumage, and the songs, which we all love to hear. But in terms of the environment, they are contributing a lot. They're heavy mm-hmm. hitters in, in terms of the overall ecosystem. Tell me about the role that they play that, that you know, we don't always think about, but is important to how everything else uh, grows and, and, and survives. Sure. Birds are, I mean, birds are directly important to people. Um, without birds to eat insects, we would be absolutely overrun. So birds eat every kind of insect you could come up with from the mosquitoes that drive us crazy, the chimney swifts and the, the barn swallows and birds that fly through the air all day long, scooping up mosquitoes, doing us a favor. Um, so, you know, they, they eat insects. That's a huge one. They plant forests. Blue jays plant forests by moving acorns around, stashing them for later they don't go back and eat them all. So, you know, birds are great uh, agents of forestry. Um, of course, it's important that they make us happy, but, you know, they do fill these ecological roles. I think another bird that um, we should appreciate more probably is the the black vulture and the turkey vulture for cleaning up, you know, roadkill. <laughs> I mean, birds provide basic sanitation services for us. Yeah. Okay, so they're big players. They're heavy hitters. They're heavy hitters. Yes, I like that. They're heavy hitters. All right. Okay. Um, And I'm going to ask you just a little bit. um, Well, let let me ask you one other thing about our local environment. We had a huge wildfire up at Pilot Mountain a couple years ago. uh, And wildfires are are a threat, are they not, to the the bird population? Sure. Um, So uh, let me think for a second. Yeah, take your time. So going back to the report, fire weather... So hot, dry, we all, we've all read about the conditions that spark the fires that are troublesome. Um, fire weather is a major threat for wood thrushes in the Midwest, according to our report. So yes, that is a threat for some birds. And, you know, some of our ecosystems are adapted to fire. Um, the red-cockaded woodpecker we mentioned earlier needs fire to maintain its habitat. Um, part of the reason it's doing so well is places like Fort Bragg are managing that habitat really well with prescribed fire. Um, and just being smart about how they manage the land so those birds can thrive. But yes, fire weather is definitely a threat for some of these birds. Okay, and yeah, we've had more of them up in the mountains as well, even past mm-hmm. uh, uh, Pilot Mountain. But um, but it sounds like it, the, the fires are a bit of a mixed picture where it can be both a threat, but a certain amount of it is, is necessary. But when, but when we have increasing amounts, which we have in recent years, then it becomes, I take it, that, that kind of balance tilts to one side. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. So, so natural levels of disturbance from fire are helpful, um, but certainly things absolutely get out of whack, especially as things are changing quickly and becoming so much more dry, and we're seeing long periods of drought that are somewhat somewhat unprecedented. Okay, and also let's uh, you know, 
many of us love to go to the beach, myself included. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what is the situation down at the coast? Because that is that is a real bellwether, I think, for the rest of the environment. What what is happening at the coast, or what could happen at the coast, that that is dangerous? And what kind of birds are we at risk of losing down there? And you can take a minute if you need to on that. Oh, sure. So at the coast, sea level rise is the major factor. We work to protect, to physically protect and watch over birds that are nesting on the beach. And so it doesn't take much imagination <laughs> to understand that sea level rise is really a challenge for those birds. There will always be a place where the ocean meets the land. But, you know, will it be sandy? Will it have the right vegetation or, in some cases, lack of vegetation that each individual bird species needs to be able to raise young successfully? Um, remains to be seen. So sea level rise is a major threat to our coastal birds, um, as well as the marsh birds too. Um, you know, their their future is also uncertain because of climate change. How quickly can those marshes migrate inland? How quickly can those areas that had been Atlantic white cedar, you mentioned the ghost forest, how quickly can those convert to marshes? Huh. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Right. And if you could, uh, you know, we know that the younger generations are really concerned about about the environment. And if you could make um, one kind of, if you could have to send one message to uh, younger people who might be listening, what um, what would that message be? What would you like to tell young people about the future of birds? I would like to tell young people that uh, birds are part of our world that's threatened by climate change. Um, I think my better role is to listen to young people right now. Their leadership is really inspirational. Um, I'm impressed by, you know, what we're hearing from young people, Greta Thunberg and, and all, you know, young people here in Forsyth County taking action. Um, you know, my household has been looking into how we can reduce our personal carbon footprint. Um, we already drive electric cars. We don't eat beef. You know, we do a lot of good things. But one of the things we're going to start doing is just reducing our food waste, which has a surprisingly large carbon impact by composting. And that's because a group of students um, are organizing composting at the Career Center, where my husband works as a teacher. So that's pretty cool. It's not something I wanted to tackle at home by myself, right? I don't feel like I know how to do that well. Also to young people, um, Audubon welcomes you. We're really becoming Audubon for everyone. You know, this is not your grandma's Audubon anymore, although we think grandma, I know my grandma would be proud if she were here to see um, the things that the Audubon Society is doing and, you know, bringing everyone together to do. Um, A year ago, we officially launched a campus chapter program, and it's taking off like crazy. So we have more than 65 Audubon groups on campus across the country. And four of those in North Carolina at Lees McRae College, UNC Asheville, UNC Wilmington, and App State. Um, They're sort of in the fledgling stage. We've also heard from Winston-Salem State and Wake Forest. uh, Some students are interested in forming Audubon campus chapters. So it's interesting that the ones you mentioned that uh, that they're they're in kind of you know they're either in the mountains or at the coast, and but the Piedmont kind of (laughs) you know doesn't doesn't seem to fit in them. It's encouraging to hear that there are two colleges that might be considering that. Yeah. All right. Um, and so if I wanted to go birding, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but if I wanted to go birding, where are good places around here to go? Oh, so many good places. Okay. So besides your yard, because you can see a lot of good birds in your yard, um, I would say my favorites are Miller Park, that surprising number of birds in a tiny urban park. It's a, just a wonderful oasis. The, the city has done a great job, again, working with Forsyth Audubon, the local Audubon chapter, choosing native plants for a stream bank restoration. Fantastic spot. Um, 
Historic Pythabra Park is amazing. You know, that's kind of our biggest um, forest patch within city limits. That one's a great one. Uh, Salem Lake is a wonderful place to see birds. And then, you know, there you can see ducks in winter. That's pretty interesting. You know, birds that we don't, we don't otherwise see if we, unless we go out and find them. I feel like I'm going to hurt someone's feelings if I don't mention more. Um, also, Rinalda, the, the trails at Rinalda Gardens are wonderful. Um, Tanglewood Park. Yeah, I could go on and on. Lots okay. of great places. And then, you know, if you want to go with people, check out ForsythAudubon.org. Um, check out their calendar. There's bird, week, bird walks all the time. And they truly welcome beginners. People think that they need to know something about birds before they show up at Audubon. Absolutely not true. And make sure you read the column in the journal that we run regularly. On <laughs> yes, from Ron Morris. Yes, our state board member and also past president of Forsyth Audubon. Yeah. I learn a lot by, by reading that. <laughs> uh, so it sounds like uh, water features are obviously very important. The, the things you've rattled off there all have, mm-hmm. you know, there's got the creek in the middle of Miller Park and all the other ones have fairly yeah. large bodies of water there. So, mm-hmm. so that, I get, think, it contributes to the diversity of what you're going to see. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Great. Absolutely. Anything I didn't ask you about? I think I'm... But right, was there anything? Uh... Sure. So I think that um, you know we've talked a little about about planting native plants. We've talked about um, reducing your carbon footprint at home, driving electric. You know, doing whatever you can. I think every every family can figure out something else, that, something more they can do. Um, but I, you know, what birds are telling us is we've we've got to take policy action at the state and federal levels. Um, so I, I really encourage people to get involved. Uh, write to your elected officials at all levels, local, state, federal. Um, let them know you care about our clean energy future. You know, this is an area that's seen good bipartisan support in North Carolina. Um, we have a great bipartisan bill on the table um, in Congress right now uh, focused on energy storage. So I think that there's lots of opportunities to raise your voice, and um, so few of us actually do that it really makes a difference, especially if you pair that, you know, email writing and phone calling, pair that with a friendly visit in district. I think um, lawmakers want to do the right thing and help, you know, make these big policy changes that we need so that the birds have a healthy future, so that people have a healthy future, so that our kids and grandkids have good jobs in North Carolina and clean energy and other industries. Um, But they just need to hear from more people. So that's, that's truly what we're seeing is they need to hear from more constituents. So ask people to get involved. Okay, and you brought up an interesting point there where a lot of people consider, especially when that report came out that was in the Journal of Science about the number of, of birds that have died over the last 50 years or so, mm-hmm. that that birds are, are really, you know, that they're a bellwether of, of how the environment's doing because some mm-hmm. of their situation is, is so tenuous. And we kind of look at what's happening there. I mean, do you, are you looking at that as a warning? Absolutely. So if, if ecosystems are broken for birds, they soon will be for humans as well. We are, our fates are absolutely intertwined with birds' fates. Yes. Thank goodness. We, thank goodness people like them enough to track them and watch how they're doing and be able to predict that into the future. Um, it gives us an insight into our own future as well. I, I wanted to... Focus on what people could do at the local level, mm-hmm. uh, but I know that policy change is a big part of what Audubon wants to do. What what kind of impact are you trying to have there? What what do you want to see happen at a policy level? Sure. So, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism at the at the policy level. We're seeing great things happening 
in states. So just this year, Washington State, New York State, Arkansas, and our neighbors to the South, South Carolina, have passed major clean energy legislation that truly moves clean energy forward in their states and therefore will reduce greenhouse gas emissions and help birds with climate change. Um, so those give me hope, and I really feel like North Carolina should be next. Um, those are all places where bipartisan, solutions-focused policies have worked, and you know that's certainly our focus and one of the things I wake up thinking about every day. Um, so I, I just think there's a lot of, of room for hope. Um, I know Audubon will be pursuing a policy at the General Assembly this coming year in 2020. Um, we're looking at policies that we can propose that will be bipartisan, that will be focused on solutions, and that will truly move us forward at the speed and scale the birds need. Okay, well, Kim Barron, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an uh, enlightening conversation, and I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Paul, for having me. You've been listening to Twin City Talks, powered by Ortho Carolina. For links to all episodes, our blog, and more, visit TwinCityTalks.com.